Chapter 20 of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 20 That inclination or predilection of Westray's for Anastasia, which he had been able to persuade himself was love, had passed away. His peace of mind was now completely restored, and he discounted the humiliation of refusal by reflecting that the girl's affections must have been already engaged at the time of his proposal. He was ready to admit that Lord Blandamer would in any case have been a formidable competitor, but if they had started for the race at the same time, he would have been quite prepared to back his own chances. Against his rival's position and wealth might surely have been set his own youth, regularity of life, and professional skill. But it was a mere tilting against windmills to try to win a heart that was already another's. Thus disturbing influences were gradually composed, and he was able to devote an undivided attention to his professional work. As the winter evenings set in, he found congenial occupation in an attempt to elucidate the heraldry of the great window at the end of the south transept. He made sketches of the various shields blazoned in it, and, with the aid of a county history and a manual which Dr. Enifer had lent him, succeeded in tracing most of the alliances represented by the various quarterings. These all related to marriages of the Blandamer family, for Van Ling had filled the window with glass to the order of the third Lord Blandamer, and the sea-green and silver of the nebulae coat was many times repeated, beside figuring in chief at the head of the window. In these studies Westray was glad to have Martin Jolliffe's papers by him. There was in them a mass of information which bore on the subject of the architect's inquiries, for Martin had taken the published genealogy of the Blandamer family, and elaborated and corrected it by all kinds of investigation as to marriages and collaterals. The story of Martin's delusion, the idea of the doited greybeard, whom the boys called Old Nebulae, had been so firmly impressed on Westry's mind that when he first turned over the papers he expected to find in them little more than the hallucinations of a madman. But by degrees he became aware that however disconnected many of Martin's notes might appear, they possessed a good deal of interest, and the coherence which results from a particular object being kept more or less continuously in view. Besides endless genealogies and bits of family history extracted from books, there were recorded all kinds of personal impressions and experiences which Martin had met with in his journeyings. But in all his researches and expeditions he professed to have but one object, the discovery of his father's name, though what record he hoped to find, or where or how he hoped to find it, whether in document or register or inscription, was nowhere set out. It was evident that the old fancy that he was the rightful owner of Fording, which had been suggested to him in his Oxford days, had taken such hold of his mind that no subsequent experience had been able to dislodge it. Of half his parentage there was no doubt. His mother was that Sophia Flannery who had married Yeoman Jolliffe, had painted the famous picture of the flowers and caterpillar, and done many other things less reputable but over his father hung a veil of obscurity which Martin had tried all his life to lift. Westray had heard those early stories from Clark Janaway a dozen times, how that when Yeoman Jolliffe took Sophia to church she brought him a four-year-old son by a former marriage. By a former marriage Martin had always stoutly maintained, as in duty bound, for any other theory would have dishonoured himself. With his mother's honour he had little concern for where was the use of defending the memory of a mother who had made shipwreck of her own reputation with soldiers and horse-copers? It was this previous marriage that Martin had tried so hard to establish, tried all the harder, 
tried all the harder, because other folk had wagged their heads, and said there was no marriage to discover, that Sophia was neither wife nor widow. Towards the end of his notes it seemed as if he had found some clue, had found some clue, or thought that he had found it. In this game of Hunt the Slipper he had imagined that he was growing hotter and hotter, till death balked him at the finish. Westray recollected Mr. Charnel saying more than once that Martin had been on the brink of solving the riddle when the end overtook him. And Charnel, too, had he not almost grasped the will-o'-the-wisp when fate tripped him on that windy night? Many thoughts came to Westray's mind as he turned these papers, many memories of others who had turned them before him. He thought of clever, worthless Martin, who had wasted his days on their writing, who had neglected home and family for their sake. He thought of the little organist who had had them in his feverish hands, who had hoped by some dramatic discovery to illumine the dark setting of his own life. And, as Westray read, the interest grew with him too, that it absorbed the heraldry of the Blandover window from which the whole matter had started. He began to comprehend the vision that had possessed Martin, that had so stirred the organist's feelings. He began to think it was reserved for himself to make the long-sought discovery, and that he had in his own hand the clue to the strangest of romances. One evening, as he sat by the fire, with a plan in his hand and a litter of Martin's papers lying on the floor at his side, there was a tap at the door, and Miss Jolliffe entered. They were still close friends, in spite of his leaving Bellevue Lodge. However sorry she had been at the time to lose her lodger, she recognised that the course he had taken was correct, and indeed obligatory. She was glad that he had seen his duty in this matter. It would have been quite impossible for any man of ordinary human feelings to continue to live on in the same house under such circumstances. To have made a bid for Ansys's hand, and to have been refused, was a blow that moved her deepest pity, and she endeavoured in many ways to show her consideration for the victim. Providence had no doubt overruled everything for the best in ordaining that Ansys should refuse Mr. Westray, but Miss Jolliffe had favoured his suit, and had been sorry at the time that it was not successful. So there existed between them that curious sympathy which generally exists between a rejected lover and a woman who has done her best to further his proposal. They had since met not unfrequently, and the year which had elapsed had sufficiently blunted the edge of Westray's disappointment to enable him to talk of the matter with equanimity. He took a sad pleasure in discussing with Miss Jolliffe the motives which might have conduced to so inexplicable a refusal, and in considering whether his offer would have been accepted if it had been made a little sooner or in another manner. Nor was the subject in any way distasteful to her, for she felt a reflected glory in the fact of her niece having first refused a thoroughly eligible proposal, and having afterwards accepted one transcendently better. "'Forgive me, sir, uh, forgive me, Mr. Westray,' she corrected herself, remembering that their relation was no longer one of landlady and lodger. "'I am sorry to intrude on you so late, but it is difficult to find you in during the day. There is a matter that has been weighing lately on my mind.' "'You have never taken away the pitcher of the flowers "'which you and dear Mr. Charnel purchased of me. "'I have not hurried in the matter, "'feeling I should like to see you nicely settled in "'before it was moved. "'But now it is time all was set right, "'so I have brought it over to-night.' "'If her dress were no longer threadbare, "'it was still of the neatest black, "'and if she had taken to wearing every day "'the moss-agate brooch which had formerly been reserved for Sundays, "'she was still the very same old, sweet-tempered, "'spontaneous Miss Jolliffe, as in time past. Westray looked at her with something like affection. "'Sit down,' he said, offering her a chair. "'Did you say you brought the picture with you?' 
and he scanned her as if he expected to see it produced from her pocket. "'Yes,' she said. "'My maid is bringing it upstairs.' And there was just a suspicion of hesitation on the word maid that showed that she was still unaccustomed to the luxury of being waited on. It was with great difficulty that she had been persuaded to accept such an alliance at Anastasia's hands as would enable her to live on at Bellevue Lodge and keep a single servant, and if it brought her infinite relief to find that Lord Blandem had paid all Martin's bills within a week of his engagement, such generosity filled her at the same time with a multitude of scruples. Lord Blandemer had wished her to live with them at Fording, but he was far too considerate and appreciative of the situation to insist on this proposal when he saw that such a change would be uncongenial to her. So she remained at Cologne, and spent her time in receiving with dignity visits from the innumerable friends that she found she now possessed, and in the fullest enjoyment of church services, meetings, parish work, and other privileges. "'It is very good of you, Miss Jolliffe,' Westrow said. "'It is very kind of you to think of the picture, but,' he went on with a too vivid recollection of the painting, "'I know how much you have always prized it, and I could not bear to take it away from Bellevue Lodge. You see, Mr. Charnel, who was part owner with me, is dead. I am only making you a present of half of it, so you must accept that from me as a little token of gratitude for all the kindness you have shown me. You have been very kind to me, you know,' he said with a sigh, which was meant to recall Miss Jolly's friendliness and his own grief in the affair of the proposal. Miss Jolly was quick to take the cue, and her voice was full of sympathy. "'Dear Mr. Westray, you know how glad I should have been if all could have happened as you wished. Yet we should try to recognise the ordering of providence in these things, and bear sorrow with meekness. But about the picture, you must let me have my own way this once. There may come a time, and that before very long, when I shall be able to buy it back from you just as we arranged, and then I am sure you will let me have it. But for the present it must be with you, and if anything should happen to me, I should wish you to keep it altogether.' Westray had meant to insist on her retaining the picture. He would not for a second time admit to being haunted with the gaudy flowers and the green caterpillar. But while she spoke, there fell upon him one of those gusty changes of purpose to which he was peculiarly liable. There came into his mind that strange insistence with which Charnel had begged him at all hazards to retain possession of the picture. It seemed as if there might be some mysterious influence which had brought Miss Jolliffe with it just now, and that he might be playing false to his trust with Charnel if he sent it back again. So he did not remain obdurate, but said, "'Well, if you really wish it, I will keep the picture for a time, and whenever you want it, you can take it back again.' While he was speaking, there was a sound of stumbling on the stairs outside, and a bang, as if something heavy had been let drop. "'It's that stupid girl again,' Miss Jolly said. "'She's always tumbling about.' "'I'm sure she's broken more china in the six months she's been with me "'than has broken before in six years.' "'They went to the door, and as Westray opened it, "'great red-faced and smiling Anne Janaway walked in, "'bearing the glorious picture of the flowers and caterpillar. "'What have you been doing now?' her mistress asked sharply. "'Very sorry, Mum,' said the maid, "'mingling some indignation with her apology. "'This here girt paint tripped I up. "'I'm sure I hope I haven't heard em.' "'And she planted the picture on the floor against the table.' Miss Jolliffe scanned the picture with an eye which was trained to detect the very flakiest chip on a saucer, the very faintest scratch upon a teapot. "'Dear me, dear me,' she said, "'the beautiful frame is ruined. The bottom piece is broken almost clean off.' "'Oh, come,' Westray said in a pacifying tone, 
while he lifted the pitcher and laid it flat on the table. Things are not so bad as all that. He saw that the piece which formed the bottom of the frame was indeed detached at both corners and ready to fall away. But he pushed it back into position with his hand till it stuck in its place, and left little damage apparent to a casual observer. See, he said, it looks nearly all right. A little glue will quite repair the mischief to-morrow, I'm sure. I wonder how your servant managed to get it up here at all. It's such a weight and size. As a matter of fact, Miss Jolliffe herself had helped Anne to carry the pitcher as far as the Grand Moulet of the last landing. The final ascent, she thought, could be accomplished in safety by the girl alone, but it would have been derogatory to her new position of an independent lady to appear before Westray carrying the pitcher herself. "'Do not vex yourself,' Westray begged. "'Look, there is a nail in the wall here under the ceiling which will do capitally for hanging it till I can find a better place. The old cord is just the right length.' He climbed on a chair and adjusted the picture, standing back as if to admire it, till Miss Jolliffe's complacency was fairly restored. Westray was busy that night long after Miss Jolliffe had left him, and the hands of the loud ticking clock on the mantelpiece showed that midnight was near before he had finished his work. Then he sat a little while before the dying fire, thinking much of Mr. Charnel, whom the picture had recalled to his mind, until the blackening embers warned him it was time to go to bed. He was rising from his chair when he heard behind him a noise as of something falling, and looking round saw that the bottom of the picture frame, which he had temporarily pushed into position, had broken away again of its own weight, and was falling on the floor. The frame was handsomely wrought with a peculiar interlacing fillet, as he had noticed many times before. It was curious that so poor a picture should have obtained a rich setting, and sometimes he thought that Sophia Flannery must have bought the frame at a sale and that afterwards daubed the flower-piece to fit it. The room had grown suddenly cold with the chill which dogs the heels of a dying fire on an early winter's night. An icy breath blew in under the door and made something flutter that lay on the floor close to the broken flame. Westray stooped to pick it up and found that he had in his hand a piece of folded paper. He felt a curious reluctance in handling it. Those fantastic scruples to which he was so often a prey assailed him. He asked himself, had he any right to examine this piece of paper? It might be a letter. He did not know whence it had come, nor whose it was. And he certainly did not wish to be guilty of opening someone else's letter. He even went so far as to put it solemnly on the table, like a skipper on whose deck the phantom whale-boat of the Flying Dutchman had deposited a packet of mails. After a few minutes, however, he appreciated the absurdity of the situation, and with an effort unfolded the mysterious missive. It was a long, narrow piece of paper, yellowed with years, and lined with the creases of a generation, and had on it both printed and written characters. He recognised it instantly for a certificate of marriage, those marriage lines on which so often hang both the law and the prophets. There it was, with all the little pigeon-holes duly filled in, and set forth how that on March the 15th, 1800, at the church of St. Medard within, one Horatio Sebastian Fines, bachelor, aged 21, son of Horatio Sebastian Fines, gentleman, was married to one Sophia Flannery, spinster, aged 21, daughter of James Flannery, merchant, with witnesses duly attesting. And underneath an ill-formed straggling hand, had added a superscription in ink that was now brown and wasted. Martin, born January the 2nd, 1801, 
at ten minutes past twelve, night. He laid it on the table, unfolded it out flat, and knew that he had under his eyes that certificate of the first marriage, of the only true marriage, of Martin's mother, which Martin had longed all his life to see and had not seen, that patent of legitimacy which Martin thought he had within his grasp when death overtook him, that clue which Charnel thought that he had within his grasp when death overtook him also. On March the 15th, 1800, Sophia Flannery was married by special licence to Horatio Sebastian Fiennes, gentleman, and on January the 2nd, 1801, at ten minutes past twelve, night, Martin was born. Horatio Sebastian. The names were familiar enough to Westray. Who was this Horatio Sebastian Fiennes, son of Horatio Sebastian Fiennes, gentleman? It was only a formal question that he asked himself, for he knew the answer very well. This document that he had before him might be no legal proof, but not all the lawyers in Christendom could change his conviction, his intuition, that the gentleman Sophia Flannery had married was none other than the octogenarian Lord Blandamer, deceased three years ago. There was to his eyes an air of authenticity about that yellow strip of paper that nothing could upset, and the date of Martin's birth, given in the straggling hand at the bottom, coincided exactly with his own information. He sat down again in the cold, with his elbows on the table and his head between his hands, while he took in some of the corollaries of the position. If the old Lord Blandamer had married Sophia Flannery on March the 15th, 1800, then his second marriage was no marriage at all, for Sophia was living long after that, and there had been no divorce. But if his second marriage was no marriage, then his son, Lord Blandamer, who was drowned in Cologne Bay, had been illegitimate, and his grandson, Lord Blandamer, who now sat on the throne of Fording, was illegitimate too. And Martin's dream had been true, selfish, thriftless, idle Martin, whom the boys called Old Nebulae, had not been mad after all, but had been Lord Blandamer. It all hung on this strip of paper, this bolt fallen from the blue, this message that had come from no one knew where. Whence had it come? Could Miss Jolliffe have dropped it? No, that was impossible. She would certainly have told him if she had any information of this kind, for she knew that he had been trying for months to unravel the tangle of Martin's papers. It must have been hidden behind the pitcher, and have fallen out when the bottom piece of the frame fell. He went to the pitcher. There was the vase of flaunting, ill-drawn flowers. There was the green caterpillar wriggling on the table-top. But at the bottom was something that he had never seen before. A long, narrow margin of another painting was now visible where the frame was broken away. It seemed as if the flower-piece had been painted over some other subject, as if Sir Flower Flannery had not even been at the pains to take the canvas out, and had only carried her daub up to the edge of the frame. There was no question that the flowers masked some better painting, some portrait, no doubt, for enough was shown at the bottom to enable him to make out a strip of a brown velvet coat, and even one mother-of-pearl button of a brown velvet waistcoat. He stared at the flowers. He held a candle close to them, in the hope of being able to trace some outline, to discover something of what lay behind. But the colour had been laid on with no sparing hand. The veil was impenetrable. Even the green caterpillar seemed to mock him, for as he looked at it closely, he saw that Sophia, in her wantonness, had put some minute touches of colour, which gave its head two eyes and a grinning mouth. He sat down again at the table where the certificate still lay open before him. That entry of Martin's birth, 
must be in the handwriting of Sophia Flannery, of faithless, irresponsible Sophia Flannery, flaunting as her own flowers, mocking as the face of her own caterpillar. There was a dead silence over all, the utter blank silence that falls upon a country town in the early morning hours. Only the loud ticking clock on the mantelpiece kept telling of time's passage, till the carillon of the St. Sepulchres woke the silence with new Sabbath. It was three o'clock, and the room was deadly cold, but that chill was nothing to the chill that was rising in his own heart. He knew it all now, he said to himself. He knew the secret of Anastasia's marriage, and of Charnel's death, and of Martin's death. End of chapter 20